0: Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee, And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Massimo Piliucci will join us to discuss Answers for Aristotle. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000, and our world-famous question a week, coming right up here on the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the big questions that predominate over human existence who are we? Why are we here? How should we live our lives have often been the province of philosophy. Science, with its basis in empirically derived observations, often seems far removed from these weightier issues. But can a combination of science and religion provide the answers? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Massimo Piliucci. Professor Piliucci is a professor in the philosophy program at the City University of New York's Graduate Center and was formerly a biology professor at Stony Brook University. He's the author and editor of over eight previous books, including most recently, Nonsense of Stilts, How to Tell Science from Bunk, and his most recent work, Answers for Aristotle, How Science and Philosophy Can Lead Us to a More Meaningful Life, explores this combination of science and philosophy. And Professor Piliucci, we're very pleased to have you. Today on the Grok Science Show. It's a pleasure to be here. Certainly, our pleasure. Certainly, a fascinating book, Answers for Aristotle. And would you try and combine science and philosophy to answering these uh, weighty philosophical issues? Why did you decide to write this book?
1: Well, there's this idea in the uh, general public that philosophy has become essentially a useless uh, enterprise, that it's you know pursued by only a few uh, very socially awkward people that go after very esoteric questions. And to some extent, unfortunately, that is true, and that's the nature of the modern academy, but that's also true for other fields, including science. You know, a lot of what scientists do is very abstruse and, and remote from the from the interest of the public. But that doesn't mean that both science and philosophy, obviously, cannot be used for better improvement, uh, improving our, our lives. And when it comes to the big questions, you know, things like justice and, and, and how to build a good society and, and what you should do with your life and how do you, Handle relationships, but of love and friendship, that sort of thing. Traditionally, people rely on a couple of obvious sources for guidance. One is religion, and the other one is, you know, common sense. You 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 learn how to behave in certain environments from your family, from your friends, from your society at large. But as it turns out, I argue in the book that religion has been a uh, often uh, at, at the best ambiguous guide to, to the big questions, and often, in fact, downright wrong. Um, in terms of uh, you. Human flourishing, and, and what kind of values in society bring to a better, a better life for for people. And common sense is is useful as as far as it goes, but we live in more and more complex societies where there's a lot more things going on that the the relationship between people are more complicated, they're more remote sometimes because of uh, modern technologies, and so common sense only goes so far. Then the question is, well, what else are you going to turn for suggestions and uh, and advice? And uh, my answer is a combination of philosophy and science. Why? Well, because science is uh, by far the most successful human activity uh, in terms of figuring out how things actually work, how the the world actually works. And that's usually a good thing to do. I mean, you want to know how the the world, the physical world actually works in order to navigate it as best, best as you can. And philosophy has been, you know, for 2,500 years or so, especially in the Western tradition, but of, of course not only, there's, there's a lot of different types of Eastern philosophies as well, has been an activity that has led people to reflect on the meaning of what people do and, and on how to best uh, achieve the, the, sort of the good life, what the, what the ancient Greeks called the, the good life. So, why not combine those two sources of insight? Uh, those are the best things that the human beings have produced in the last two and a half millennia in terms of knowledge and understanding, so it seems like the sort of the logical thing to do.
0: Certainly not. A, uh, science and philosophy seem very divorced, science especially being grounded in physical, observable facts. How can it really say anything about somewhat less tangible issues?
1: Well, the relationship between science uh, and, and philosophy has been complicated. Uh, for one thing, until not that long ago, historically speaking, science was actually a part of philosophy, right? It was referred to as, as uh, natural philosophy. People like Galileo and, and, and Newton were thinking of themselves as philosophers. Then, during and after the scientific revolution of the 17th, century things started developing in a way that essentially science became its own field and uh, and it became largely independent of philosophy, which is the way it's practiced today. That doesn't mean, however, that there is no, no fruitful connection between the two. Let me give you just one example, um, just to make things a little more practical. Let's say that we're having, as a society, a discussion about the permissibility of abortion, for instance, just to pick a controversial topic. Now there are two matters, two issues there that matter in that discussion. One is is what kind of values do we start with that discussion with? What kind of assumptions about ethics do we start with? And what follows logically from, from those assumptions? And that is the, the area of expertise of philosophers. Let's say, for instance, that you are a consequentialist in, in ethics or a uh, utilitarian. You think that basically good things are things that, in, that increase people's happiness, and, and bad things are, people that, are things that increase people's pain. Well, from that position, from that philosophical analysis, it may follow, for instance, that abortion, I'm just picking an example uh, arbitrarily, that abortion may be permissible up until the point in which the fetus begins to feel pain. Now, let's say that we have our philosophical analysis has arrived at that point. Well, if that is the case... Now it's the turn of the scientists, not the philosopher, to say, well, from what we know about human developmental biology, from what we know about neurobiology, and so on and so forth, that moment or that period happens to be, I don't know, I'll pick, pick a number again, You know, three months of gestation or four months or whatever it is. So that is a situation where you, in order to arrive at the best answer or the most reasonable answer to the question that you posed, uh, you need both the philosophical analysis. You need to talk about ethics. You need to reason about the implications of your values and what happens when, when some values enter into conflict with other values you know the, the, the one value could be let's say the well-being of the mother the other value of course is the well-being of the fetus but, but you do arrive at a point where you need factual answers you need like okay well now we, we got a criterion going now it's we turn to science, uh, to tell us how best to deploy that criterion, how best to actually, uh, figure out an empirically based answer to the, to the question. So that's one nice way in which the two work together. Now, by the way, I should add that In the book, I actually suggest that science and philosophy are going to be informative. They're not going to give you the answers. There are no simple answers in life, unfortunately. Most most interesting questions don't have simple answers. Uh, But what philosophy and science, I think, are are going to give you, I I argue in, in Answers for Aristotle, is the best possible option or the range of best possible options that we have, given the complexity of our problems.
0: So really, in a sense, science can't give you the the starting point, really, is this uh, philosophical, in this case, definition of values. Uh, Science really can't define what those values should be.
1: Correct. This this was back to David Hume, one of the most influential modern philosophers. Uh, He was um, a Scottish philosopher back in the 18th century, and he wrote uh, this this really interesting analysis of the relationship between uh, facts and values, and he famously said that there is no logical, direct connection between an, an ought and an is, so you cannot derive a value, an ought, what, what you ought to do, from a, a factual matter, from what it is the case. And, and, you know, if you think about it, we all agree with that. There are plenty of things that are natural, right, so they're the factually natural, and yet they're not good for us. Poisonous mushrooms come to mind. You know they're perfectly natural, but you, I wouldn't recommend that you, you eat them. And at the same time, there are uh, you know in conversely, there are a lot of things that are not natural at all. Like for instance, the technology we're using for to have this conversation, and yet they're you know pretty good. We, we make a good use of it. So there is really no logical connection between what is and what ought to be. That, however, doesn't mean that the two are completely divorced. The example of, of the criteria for abortion that I mentioned a minute ago is is one. You do need facts information to make the best decisions in life but those informa- those decisions need to be informed also by your values and by reflecting on your values the problem is people do have values but they often however don't reflect on their values they just take them for granted and philosophy helps you to sort of think about well Wait a minute, why, why do I hold to this thing? Why do I think that this thing is right or wrong? And why do I think that this thing had to get priority over these other these other issues? That's the, that's the value of philosophy. It's in, it's in the ability to reflect on things and, and come up with uh, explanations and reasons for why you think that one course of action is better than another.
0: But in a way, it still boils down to what those core values are. And do you think science can really ever give insight into what those those basic core values should be?
1: Sure. That's a good question. The answer to that question is a little more complex. So if you notice in the, in the book, in Answers for Aristotle, I often do two or three chapters on the same topic, let's say on ethics, for instance. Let's talk about moral decision-making ethics. There are three chapters in there that answer three different questions, which you can ask reasonably about morality. One question is, you know, where do we get this idea that, that of right and wrong? Where, where do we get these very strong feeling? It's a very strong emotion. You know, when, when you are, if you're a normal human being, if you're not a sociopath, when you're exposed to an injustice or when you're exposed to something that you feel is really wrong, you get this very strong gut reaction, this very strong feeling. It's an instinct that makes you react in a certain way to something that you think is wrong. Well, a reasonable question is, what does that come from? And I think there, the best answer is, in fact, provided by science. That kind of very strong moral sense of right and wrong comes out of our evolution as social primates. We needed a certain instinctual reaction that allowed us to maintain certain behaviors with Within our social groups, when uh, you know, back in the early time, in the early times of human history, so that we would react appropriately when somebody was doing something hurtful to the group, and so the development, the evolution of those feelings, I think, is is the province of evolutionary biology that's that's where you get that answer a second question you can ask about morality is okay fine but how does it work in terms of you know how does moral reasoning work what, what kind of things go on in your brain when you engage in in moral decision making and there it's also a matter of science but a different one that's neurobiology or cognitive science that is the kind of thing that tells you the kind of, of approach that tells you oh and it turns out that when you're reacting in a certain way to a moral dilemma certain areas of your brain for instance, the amygdala which are involved in emotional responses are the ones that are activated. And, and that's useful to know because it's, it demystifies the whole thing. I mean, too often people think of morality as this kind of you know, mystical thing that, that it's not clear where it comes from or how it works. Well, it's clear where it comes from. It comes from the fact that we're social primates, and it is clear also, it's beginning to be clear how it works. It, it works in, in, uh, by using certain circuits in the brain uh, that allow us to engage in, in moral decision making. None of this, however, notice, tells you if if in fact an action that you're thinking of doing or not is in fact right or not, you still have to think about it in a, in a more deliberate way. You still have to analyze the consequences. For instance, you have to weigh those consequences against against a range of values that you and your society might hold. In which case, again, you have to in, to involve yourself in in, physic, in philosophical reflection. There's an analogy that I make in the book. Imagine that I that, that somebody were interested in let's say the human mathematical ability. How come that that we can solve very complex mathematical problems, such as from math last year? Well, I I think that the answer there is, again, uh, there are three different questions, and science and and mathematics, in this case, answer those questions. The first question is, how come that human beings have developed the ability to think abstractly about numbers? Well, probably that was advantageous early on in our evolutionary history. It was a matter of you know keeping track of things, for instance, number of members in our group or how they behaved and that sort of stuff. Then you can ask the question: Well, how does the brain work when you're thinking, when you're trying to resolve, you know, for math, last theorem or more Pythagorean theorem, whatever it is? And, and the neurobiologists can tell you what certain areas of the brain are involved, other areas of the brain are not involved. But none of that is going to tell you how to solve for math, last theorem. You need mathematics for that. You need logic. You need a, you need an applied type of logic that we call mathematics. So it's the same with uh, morality and philosophy. You, there are different questions you can ask, and the answers. some of the answers do come from science, and some of them come from
0: philosophy. Well, well certainly the science inv- of this issue of morality, evolution, and neurobiology of it tell us why it uh, evolved in our species as it did and sort of how it works in our brains today. But one could certainly envision another possible scenario, another possible world, for example, evil universe, where right. you have an evil universe where evil is, in fact, the preferred mode of action. So it really doesn't tell you fundamentally why good should be good or why evil is evil. Yeah. Now,
1: that's a good question. I don't I don't actually subscribe to this idea that good and evil are absolute, that, that there is such a thing as, you know, somewhere in the universe at a cosmic level there, there is a categorization of good and evil. What I think, the way I think of ethics is it's a way of reasoning, just like logic and mathematics are. And so, just like in logic and mathematics, you start with some, certain assumptions and you try to derive the most reasonable conclusions from those assumptions. Now, you can always question Assumptions. You can always say, "Well, well why do I? Why, why should I build a system of ethics that increases the majority of people's happiness and decreases pain? Or why should I build a system of ethics that uh, leads most people, the most pe- m- as many people as possible, to a, a flourishing life?" Well, the answer to that is is pretty basic. It's, this, because that is the kind of being that we are. In that case, that is a naturalistic answer. We are a kind of social being that tries under certain conditions, and it does make sense for us to try to foster those conditions. But let me give you an example of where – There is a a, a sort of decoupling a little bit between the the natural history, let's say, the the biology of moral decision-making and the more complex philosophical one. So one of the things that we know is that human beings have a very strong instinct of uh, a very strong tendency for xenophobia, for being uh, distrustful of members of, of other groups of outsiders. Now very likely, we don't know this for a fact, but very likely this evolved because for most of our history, uh, if somebody was an outsider, it probably wasn't friendly. And so it's, it's natural to imagine that, uh, you know, biology, natural selection allowed these, these sort of very strong instinctive distrust for other people, the people who look differently from us, uh, to evolve. But now we live in a complex, modern multicultural society where we we can reason about these things and we can say, well, wait a minute, just because that person looks different from me, that doesn't mean that he's evil, it doesn't mean that he's a bad guy, Uh, He's just different uh just because that person worships a different god or goes to a different place uh, uh for for you know during during this weekend it doesn't mean that that's a threat to me so we can reason through our our through these new situations and now we find ourselves in in an interesting position where our immediate instinct still today for most people is in fact to be distrustful of uh, of the different of the, of the person that looks different, but our reason, our our, uh, ability to reflect on things says, yes, but that is irrational, so I'm going to override it. I may have a, a, a strong feeling of you know xenophobia, but I'm going to override. I'm going to make a decision to say no. There is no reason for that, or there is no reason any longer for that. This may have had a reason back in the Pleistocene, but in, in, in modern uh, society, uh, in, it, not only there is no longer that reason, but in fact it's, it's pernicious. I'm beginning to. I, I, if I yield to it, I'm going to treat people in, in a way that is not consistent with the values that I hold in, in a multicultural society. So I'm not going to do it. Um, and, and we are constantly in that kind of situation. That's why I, I think that it's not just a matter of science, it's a matter of interacting, interaction between science and, and philosophy, because you, you have to reflect. The facts are not enough. The facts are very important, but they're not enough by themselves.
0: So in a sense, sort of deeper understanding of why we think the way we do gives us a means of reasoning out to a better outcome than would normally arise from our instincts.
1: That's exactly right. So for instance, there's a chapter in Answers for Aristotle about uh, love, right? You know, I mean, who doesn't care about love? love and relationships and all that but there too um, you know there is a there's a almost a mystical you know aura uh, around you know falling in love with a person and developing a relationship and all that well you know a biologist will tell you that really is a basic instinct. I mean, we have a basic capacity, again, unless you're a, sort of a sociopath, you have very basic capacity of, uh, you know, getting, developing an interest in falling in love with developing certain very strong feelings for another person. Where does that come from? Well, that comes from the fact that we are sexual beings that need, uh, you know, pair bondings to raise the offspring and all that sort of stuff. That is where it comes from, and neurobiologists can tell you very precisely what happens exactly to your brain when you fall in love with a person. So when you fall out of love with a person, when you move from a phase of romantic love to a phase of attachment, for instance, long-term attachment. All of those things are, can be understood scientifically and, and I think it's useful to understand them scientifically because when you are in the throes of that uh, you know, hormonal rush or when you lose the hormonal rush and all of a sudden you feel completely dejected and, you know, and, and sad, you say, well, I know where that comes from. It's, it's my biology that is reacting that way. However. That doesn't mean that there is therefore no meaning in relations. It's just biology, nothing but biology. Because we are social beings capable of reflecting about what we do and why we do it, so we have we attach meaning to things. We can think about the value of a person, regardless of, of the specific rush of hormones that happen to accompany uh, you know a particular period of our lives, and so we can start making decisions. You know, do I want to uh, keep working on this relationship, even though the initial uh, you know euphoria is passed? Is it is it a good thing to do for me is this person a good person for me, and so on and so forth. You start reflecting on things, you start thinking about it, and therefore you go sort of beyond the basic, the basic biology. Um, and so the, the the chapter on love in, in answers for Aristotle starts with the biology, but then it moves on uh, to provide sort of an understanding of the phenomenon. But then it moves on to uh, different philosophical conceptions of love, and you know why is it that that um, uh, that we care for other people, why why we value other people in a certain way, uh, why the relationship may or may not be exclusive
0: and that sort of of things Some might sort of see this view as uh, taking away a little bit of the mystery of human emotions Uh, Do you think it does or do you think it heightens or expands our notion of who we are?
1: Yeah, I'm not a fan of mysteries for the mystery's sake, I uh, have to say. Um, you know, before becoming uh, a philosopher full-time, I was a scientist for 20 years, and uh, mysteries are there to be solved, in, in, in my mind, they're, they're, or at least to do it the best you can to solve mysteries. I don't, I don't relish the, the idea of a mystery. Uh, some people do, but, you know, that, that may be a matter of character. But what I want to stretch is, so in that case, the, the, in, in that sense, the answer is, yes, we, we're trying to chip away at the mystery and try to understand the human condition from a variety of perspectives, evolutionary biology, uh, neurobiology, and, and philosophy. But I think that that chipping away at the mystery actually enhances our ability to uh, figure out how to live a good life. And by good life, I don't mean you know how to make money or, or or eat a lot of food or whatever it is. I mean it in the sense that the ancient Greeks meant it. They had a word that is almost untranslatable in English. That 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 word was eudaimonia, which literally meant uh, having a good demon uh, or sort of a good a good guide for life. And for the for the ancient Greeks, the good life was the life of flourishing. was a life that, that you, you get to the end of it and you look back and you say, you know, I'm proud of, of of that that of this existence. I'm proud of what I did. I did. Uh, I made moral decisions. I I care for people. I I love people. I accomplished things in whatever whatever area of work I decided to to engage, I actually did uh, good things that that were useful to me and, and to society. so that is that what we I think we aim at I think the meaning. We build our meaning in life. It doesn't come from outside. There is no no God giving us meaning. There is no cosmic book written anywhere that tells you what your, the meaning of your life is. We build it. We make it up as we go. But as it turns out, there are better ways and worse ways to do it. And, again, in order to figure out the better ways, I think you need both as much factual information as you can gather to navigate your life and as, as much reflection as you can uh, spare to do uh, in order to make the right decisions. And, and those, of course, map very nicely with science, which it provides you the facts, and philosophy, which provides you the tools for reflecting on things.
0: Well, it looks like we're running slightly out of time. Uh, I'm just curious uh, if you maybe have some uh, closing words regarding uh, book answers for Aristotle and uh, really how science and philosophy can lead us to a more meaningful life.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, if you, if you want to think about the, the book in this way, it's, it's really a, a, um, a self-help book for people who don't like self-help books. It's, you know, if you try to figure out a smart way of approaching your questions and your issues in life, that may be a good starting point.
0: Well, the, the new book again is called Answers for Aristotle, How Science and Philosophy Can Lead Us to a More Meaningful Life. And the author there is uh, Professor Massimo Piliucci. And Professor Piliucci, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show.
1: It was a pleasure.
0: And you were just listening to Professor Massimo Piliucci discussing the Answers for Aristotle. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. It's not easy having yourself look time to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Scientific or Philosophic? So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 like to know if you think they're more scientific in their way of thinking or philosophical, and uh, a little reason why. Professor Pagliucci, ready to play the game? Okay. Okay, here we go. go. Person number one, scientific or philosophical, it's uh, the actor Charlie Sheen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> can, I, can I pick neither? <laughs> if I really have to pick one of those, I would say philosophical, but bad
0: philosophy. <laughs> but certainly an entertaining philosophy, whatever it is. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Uh, number two, it's Oprah Winfrey.
1: Oh, I would have to say philosophical, but again, I'm not so sure that the philosophy is a good one in that case. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> uh, number three, evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins.
1: Oh, definitely scientific. In fact, Richard, uh, who I'm, I'm uh, interestingly meeting again in a couple of days because we've both have been invited to a, an interesting workshop on uh, philosophy and naturalism. Yeah, the, the Richard definitely is on the scientific side, and I told him a couple of times that he could actually use a little more philosophy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number four, it's uh, Tiger Woods.
1: Tiger Woods, philosophy. Uh, also, in his case, not necessarily a good one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, and finally, number five, President of the United States, Barack Obama.
1: Oh, that's an interesting one. Actually, I think that Obama uh, represents a really interesting combination of the the approach that I'm talking about in the book. He's he's informed by the facts, so the science, but he reflects on those facts, so the philosophy. I guess if I had to pick, I would go for philosophy uh, in a constructive way, however, uh, informed by the facts.
0: Okay. All right. Well, Professor Piliucci, I want to thank you very much for sticking around, playing your game, and again talking about your book, Answers for Aristotle, How Science and Philosophy Can Lead Us to a More Meaningful Life. Thank you very much for your time